Uh, a pity, uh, yes. I appreciate the yes. fact that you find me attractive. Every frog wants to be needed. But uh, there is no room in my life for <clears throat> romance at this time. Thank you. Oh, oh, I'm crushed. Oh, oh I'm destroyed. Yeah. My life has no meaning. It's, it, it's over. It's over. Piggy, uh, listen, oh, the uh, sun will never shine on this pig. Oh, death, death. Where is thy sting? Uh, <gasps> uh, Piggy, aren't you just overdoing it a little bit? Uh, maybe. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick. Nick, it is January 8th, 2021. How did you enjoy the coup? Uh, that... <laughs> that's a question. I feel like answering that will der- derail at least the next, like, 90 minutes. Let's just say we're anti-coup. Let's just make that bold statement. We're fairly anti-coup. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. We're currently going through the first season of The Muppet Show, two episodes at a time. And we got some cool ones to talk about tonight. But before we get there, I'd like to uh, ask you to check out our social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our newest episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. To me, these episodes were a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, I, I would say that. Let's roll. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and dogs and frogs and pigs and chickens, and welcome to The Muppet Show. Hey, we are particularly happy tonight to have with us as our special guest star, the talented, the beautiful, and the indefatigable Miss Lena Horn. But right now, we're going to start off the show with an act that was discovered by... So first up is episode 111. Singer, dancer, actor, and civil rights activist Lena Mary Calhoun Horn was born in Brooklyn in 1917. She is likely a descendant of South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, which would actually make her and I related by marriage. (laughs) After moving around quite a bit as a child, she started her career at 16 in the chorus line at New York's famous Cotton Club. She worked her way from chorus girl to featured performer, eventually catching the eye of Hollywood, of course, where she was signed to MGM Studios and starred in several kind of mid-grade movie musicals, including Panama Hattie, Cabin in the Sky, and uh, Stormy Weather, where she sung the theme song. Horn was rarely given a lead role in any of these films because in those days there were several markets that would not exhibit films that starred black actors, particularly ones in the South, and the studios would unfortunately oblige them by cutting out the quote-unquote offending material. I usually didn't stand very close to the next performer in the scene. So when they went south in the states that didn't like it, they could easily lift the scene which meant that Horn's scenes tended to be superfluous standout numbers that could be easily snipped without altering the narrative. So uh, she was pretty disenchanted with Hollywood, and who could blame her? And she said she was, quote, tired of being typecast as a Negro who stands against a pillar singing a song. I did that 20 times too often. And if anybody's seen a lot of old Hollywood musicals, you know exactly what she's talking about. 
During that time, she was also blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities, but later renounced her any belief in communism. I don't She went to a couple meetings. I, I, I couldn't find quite exactly how much she was involved, but I really don't care. It <laughs> doesn't affect my opinion of someone either way. After leaving Hollywood, she went back to where she started, the nightclubs. She headlined all over North America and Europe. She played the Sands in Las Vegas and the famous Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, which neither of those exist anymore. She was the first African-American woman nominated for a Tony Award in 1958 for her part in the musical Jamaica, and then spent much of her ne- the next couple of decades making appearances on variety shows like Ed Sullivan, Dean Martin, The Hollywood Palace. She also starred or co-starred many television specials, including 1970s Harry and Lena, with fellow future Muppet Show guest Harry Belafonte. She would only star in a handful of more films, including 1969's Death of a Gunfighter with Richard Widmark, and 1978's The Wiz, playing Glinda the Good Witch alongside Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, Richard Pryor, and Diana Ross. Oh my god, I have seen her before. If we know ourselves, we're always home, anywhere. If you believe within your heart, you know. And that movie was directed by the late, great Sidney Lumet, director of 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, The Verdict, who was at the time married to Lena's daughter, Gail. So it was actually her son-in-law directed that movie. Horn was also involved in the American Civil Rights Movement. She attended an NAACP rally with Medgar Evers the very week he was assassinated. She spoke at Dr. King's March on Washington on behalf of the NAACP and the National Council of Negro Women and worked with former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt to pass anti-lynching laws. She died in 2010 at the age of 92. The interesting fact I found about her is that when she was entertaining troops in Italy during World War II, that Jim Crow was alive and well in the army. I'd been ticked off going from camp to camp because I'd have to go in the white offices, buildings to entertain. Someday that dreaming will get you in dust. I had done a show the night before to all the white people, and I was going to get to sing for black soldiers this next night. And there they were, in the back. And then the white soldiers, and then mingled in with them on one side. German, prisoners of war. Can it be the same old situation? And I just got choked. And I went to the back where they were sitting and sang with my back to all the other people. Baby, come out of the clouds. They said, get her off these tours. She causes trouble. They threw me out of the USO. So pretty remarkable woman. This was produced mid-July 1976, premiered November and October, depending on what country you were in, uh, same year. It was directed by Peter Harris, and it was written by Burns, London, Henson, and Jewell. I know that's stunning. I don't like being surprised. I fear change. Uh, not a lot of new faces in this, I don't think. I don't think I saw anybody new or returning, really, right? I mean, I guess, I don't think we've seen the mops before outside of, uh... Yeah, but we're never going to see them again, either. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so, I mean, yeah, they're technically new. Well, I don't even know if they're puppets, they're just mops. <laughs> um, I guess the lead They had mouths. They did. First up, so we have our, you know, once we get past the opening theme, Kermit comes out and does introduce a gang of mops singing the song Rag Mop, which was a hit for the Ames Brothers in 1950. 
So that was actually a hit song. It's kind of a fun bit. Yeah, it wasn't bad. This aired late 1976, but in September of 76, they actually showed part of this on The Tonight Show, Hmm. including footage of the guys underneath performing it. You can actually find this footage of like, yes, it's the actual skit that they use, but it's also footage of them down below. It's a pretty typical Muppet opening number, I would say. Muppet show opening number. Yeah, it's a solid one. I do like the fact that it was George the janitor mm-hmm. who uh, who found them. And we, of course, established in the Muppet Valentine show that... I love my mop. Hey! Hey, everybody! I love my mop! Now we come to the backstage story. There's a lot of current Piggy in this episode. This feels like around the time where they're really starting to realize that Piggies should be a bigger part of the show. Mm-hmm. Like, her parts have been getting a little bigger. And now, like... These next two episodes are kind of like have a lot of piggy backstage. This is another episode where Kermit's kind of a dick. Kind of, but also <laughs> who really wants to follow Jimi Hendrix, right? Like not saying that Lenny, Lena Horn is Jimi Hendrix, but in his way, he was being considerate because he's like, piggy, I'm not going to have you go up there after Lena Horn. How can I say this? There are singers and there are singers. You catch my drift? <gasps> oh, and, and you don't want me to overshadow Miss Horn. Oh, of course you're right. What a considerate frog. Ignorance is truly bliss. So there's a little cognitive dissonance there. (laughs) A little wishful thinking. But yeah, so that's going to be this part of the storyline is that Kermit has bumped Piggy from tonight's show. What's fascinating about that is we have yet to see an episode where Piggy gets her own number. Would Temptation count? No, that's not her own number. Fair. She stole it, though. And then we get Lena's first number. She sings a song called I Got a Name, which was a Jim Croce song. It was the theme song from the 1973 movie The Last American Hero, which was actually a film about Jeff Bridges, who played a bootlegger who becomes a NASCAR driver, which is really, if you do know anything about the history of NASCAR, it's kind of the same thing. Nothing more American than moonshine NASCAR. So we're going to touch on this again in a little bit. I'm sure that Lena Horne is a lovely lady. I've, I regret that I didn't know much more about her before hearing your bio. She's got this quasi-Kubrick stare, which is really unsettling a lot of the time. (laughs) And so, like, I would see her staring off, and I'm sure she's absolutely sweet and, like, really nice and really intelligent. But something about the way that she trained herself, like, she just, she's staring. And I don't know what she's looking at, but it's kind of like a cat looking at a wall, like a spot on the wall and being sure that there's something there. But she's smiling at the same time. So it's like, it's not terrifying, but it's unsettling. I don't know how to explain it better. I don't know if she has the right type of charisma for The Muppet Show. The first thing I wrote about this number was, this is so effing 70s. I wasn't old enough to see disco or hard rock of the era or the great films of the era. To me, the 70s is sitting in the back of my parents' car and listening to whatever they were playing on the radio or whatever they're watching on TV. And this scene from the way it was staged to the actual song to the way she was dressed and the way she performed was so damn 70s to me. It actually gave me the hives. It's the part of the 70s I can't stand. <laughs> this is going to be my thesis going forward. But I think the song selection for her in this are probably appropriate for her, but bad for The Muppet Show. Hmm. It's okay when a guest sings one sincere song, but all three of her songs in this are just sincere musical numbers. 
Mm-hmm. There's no bits to them. There's no conceit to them. She just comes out and sings a song, and the songs aren't funny. They're not even particularly entertaining. They're just kind of these soft rock songs. I don't know. I couldn't dig it. I had a, a good parent moment, though, where I was watching it with my seven-year-old. It starts off with a wide shot. She's at some kind of train station or something, I guess. Yeah, this has... For some reason. Like, it, it randomly, it doesn't sound anything like it, but it randomly made me think of that old Gladys Knight song, uh, Midnight Train to Georgia. But she walks up and she's got a little dog with her. She sits down next to this thing, and then the camera kind of moves in, and it frames out the dog, and it frames her to almost a half shot, right? And she starts singing. And then some other Muppets join her to sing, but then a puppet dog pops up. I couldn't tell if it was Muppy or it was a similar dog to The Muppet. eyes seemed different, but I wasn't sure if we just didn't usually see enough of Muppy's eyes. And my daughter went, wait, is that a real dog? And I go, no, of course not. She goes, but there was a real dog. And I go, aha, you just noticed the cowboy switch. <laughs> so we went back. I walked her through the whole thing because what happens at the end is the puppet leaves the frame. Then the camera pulls back and the real dog is still there, mm-hmm. all creating the illusion that this dog sat up and, and was singing with her. And so I walked through it with my seven-year-old. And she was like, oh, so he was there. And then. He's off frame. I was like, yeah, and then the puppeteer runs in and puts in, and then he runs out. She's like, oh, that's crazy. I was like, okay, that was a good parenting moment. I got to teach her a little bit of how, how movies and TV work. Some of the things that happen in this episode are pretty manic and pretty crazy and loud. Ragmop is a pretty energetic, weird way to start the show. And then to just settle into this, and I, I've got nothing against Jim Croce, but just to kind of settle into this 70s soft rock, almost ballad, yeah, just didn't do it for me. And then we continue our backstage story. Piggy basically asks to die because Kermit doesn't want to date her. (laughs) Don't be wrong. Piggy digs herself the frog. There's also something performative about it. If Kermit were easier, for lack of a better word, prey, she would have moved on a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's just the, the, the hard to get nature and the dramatic nature and, and almost the, I don't mean to like treat this lightly, but there's an abusive relationship. (laughs) <laughs> just a little bit and not you know where where it's like she loves him he re- he rebukes her that just makes her want him more and in this she she really goes ham and what's the line the sun will never shine on this pig <laughs> and she calls for death's sweet sting <laughs> and then kermit tells her she's overacting and she goes maybe now we get to what i actually think was lena horn's funniest moment in the muppet newsflash where the Muppet newsman tells us uh, this, we're still in the stage of the Muppet news where they're doing interviews with the guests and they're playing characters. It was funny to me how, in a way, how well this didn't age in a <laughs> 70s way, because the whole bit was that she's a woman that only eats seaweed. And I'm like, we eat a lot of seaweed these days. <laughs> like, even then, it's pretty popular in Japan. It's not crazy to eat seaweed. Mrs. Bramswell, has eating only seaweed presented any problems? No, not really. Except that Twice a day, I find myself going in and out with the tide. It was a roundabout way of getting to that punchline of... That's not easy to do in Kentucky. At the Dance is next. I feel like some of these jokes were recycled, or maybe I just watched this episode recently. I don't know. I felt like I'd heard these jokes before. The blows is top thing seems like something we've done before, but I don't know if that's just... It just felt very familiar. Then we have our UK spot. We haven't seen a solo with him and... Zoot before though, have we? No, this was Rolf and Zoot. They play the theme to Love Story. Have you ever seen Love Story? I'm gonna say no. So Love Story is an Arthur Hill film from 1970, starring Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw. The funny thing about Love Story, the guy who wrote it was roommates with Al Gore in college. Huh. And Love Story is not based on, but inspired by Al and Tipper Gore's early romance. Hmm. 
but it also is a very sad movie. It's very and and the bit in this was they play the song, they play an instrumental version. It does have lyrics, but they play an instrumental version of it. But it ends with Rolf crying, which is a shout out to the fact that the movie is a real tearjerker. Love Story is kind of one of the archetypal Hollywood tearjerker movies, up with like Terms of Endearment and things like that. Jenny, I, I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. But the fact that Rolf is crying is kind of a reference to the fact that it's love story. And I've, I've, to be fair, I've never seen it either. I know a lot about it. I've just never seen it. Hey, watching this, and we talked about this earlier, I think, I think Dave Goles does such a good job when Suit is playing. There's a degree of free association that is made a lot easier when you're not exchanging dialogue. And I think that in a weird way, them playing music allows them to bring out more of the Muppets than they get when they've got to land a punchline with a joke. Because there's there's just inarticulate, or not inarticulate, but I guess a, a degree of ineffable energy there. Muppet movies in the future would pretty much all be musicals, and that music is a very huge, important part of the Muppets. For some reason, they express themselves very well in music. But in this, without any lyrics... I don't know, when Rolf is playing the piano or Dr. Teeth is playing the piano, it seems magical to me. I just think it's so well done. And and that's why, as we've been watching, my favorite stuff's been Electric Mayhem stuff, <laughs> even if it's not necessarily the funniest. At this point, having watched the show, watched the Muppets develop through all these episodes and all the years that we've been following them, uh, I don't know. I really enjoy it when it's just kind of Muppets playing instruments. So then there's, a, I think, a kind of a funny talk spot. I thought this was... This was a tidy one. It had an ending, but also there was um, the inclusion of Fozzie and the way that Fozzie played it. It seems like for most, like we, we see Lena Horne interacting with other Muppets, but she feels most natural here. There's also, I don't want to say a motherly vibe that she gives off, but there is a part of her that's sort of just wants to, I guess, validate any Muppet she runs into. Like, you seem like you're having a bad day, let me tell you why you're great. And that, in combination with the quasi-Kubrick stare, made this a weird... Like, I can't properly articulate why it's so unsettling. I have nothing but admiration for her, but I did not love her in this episode. I'm not gonna lie. I thought she was out of place. I thought she was a little out of sync. I thought she was not funny enough. But this is probably one of the funnier bits she's in. Mm -hmm. Kermit's talking to her, and then Fozzie complains that he never gets to talk to the guests. And then Lena's like, But aren't you Fozzie Bear, the great comedian? <laughs> what? A sensitive and intelligent person like you must be a great comedian. Oh. Hey, there you are, Fozzie. Huh? Wow. You actually know me? Well, listen, when you've made a name for yourself in show business, everybody knows you, so it's... It's only natural that I would know the great Fozzie Bear. Ah. Sure, just as it's only natural that you would know Lena Horne. Oh, Lena Horne? Oh, I love Lena Horne. Oh, yeah, she's terrific. I mean, she's great, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I think she's terrific and great, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's going to be a guest on our show one of these weeks. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, Fozzie, uh, she is a guest this week. She's a guest this week? Yes. On this show here? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, wow, that's great. I don't want to miss Lena Horn. Are you going to stick around and see her? I might just do that. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I didn't get your name. Dave. Doris Dave. 
I've heard that name before. I'm not sure who it is. She was an actor and a singer as well. Um, known for kind of very whole, known for a very wholesome image. I think she was in a Hitchcock movie. She was, yeah, she was in the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much with, uh, with, uh, Cary Grant. I need you not to hate me, but the only Hitchcock I've seen is Rear Window. You've seen the best one. Hmm. So, you know, we'll get you to watch more, but you've actually seen the best one. And I must take it back because I will be, um, murdered by my friends. Uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much is with Jimmy Stewart, not Cary Grant. <laughs> Please. Chuck. Chuck, are you listening? After she says Doris Day, Fozzie says, Cute. Cute name. That's not the first time they've said that. That line is a running joke throughout the season so far. That's what everyone says about Scooter. They all look at the camera and go, Cute. Cute name. This kind of structure of cute, cute blank comes back. I just, this is the first time I noticed. I was like, they've said that before. It feels like Frank is about halfway there on the voice. It's still a little deeper, like it is when the in, in the earlier episodes, but it's starting to sound more like Fozzie. And I also think in this, he is lovably clueless. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that Fozzie doesn't get embarrassed because there's no point. Kermit never turns to him and goes, this is Lena Horne, you idiot. He gets close at the end, but yeah. Then uh, I have down here a big hit from, from my kids. Uh, the Swedish chef is attacked by killer spaghetti. That was a nice one. Uh, my daughter was a big fan <laughs> of this one. Um, there's really not much to say about it other than the killer. The Swedish chef is attacked by killer spaghetti. That's exactly the summation on, uh, on the Muppet Wiki. And uh, I can't come up with anything better. <laughs> I mean, he did hit it first. The chef pretty much deserves everything that he gets. <laughs> then let's see. We have Gonzo. I didn't even write it down. What was Gonzo's act? He doesn't get into it. There's uh, someone, in, I think, uh, he comes out on the stage with a balloon and Animal pops it. That's right. He's just, he, oh, that's right. He was going to do. Tonight, I present a unique version of Pop Goes the Weasel. Uh, with a surprise ending. <laughs> Yeah, and then Animal just messes it up. And this is the second time, actually. This happened with Joel Grey, too, right? Where Gonzo's act doesn't go well, and the guest star sings a song to cheer him up. I was about to say, his acts don't generally go well, but this is probably, yeah. This is the second time. It said Joel Grey did the exact same thing. Joel Grey, when Gonzo had a bad day, went and that's what led him into singing Razzle Dazzle. Mm-hmm. Lena comes to com- comfort him by singing a song called I'm Glad There Is You. In this world of ordinary people, Extraordinary people. I'm glad there is you. This is kind of an old jazz standard. I think it was written in 1941. It's been covered by people, you know, like Smokey Robinson, Dorothy Dandridge, all the way up to like Beyonce and Seth MacFarlane have covered it. Like, so it's a pretty classic jazz standard. One of these in an episode is fine. Multiple kind of bored me. I don't remember much of the songs, um, mm-hmm. and that doesn't make them bad songs. It just, mm. they didn't hook me in in that way. It's because they're not fun. I guess, but they're not like... fun songs. There are plenty of songs that I'll listen to that aren't necessarily fun. It's just, she's got a lovely voice, and there's a degree of admiration there, but the immersion is broken pretty consistently, so I don't... Re- I don't feel like I retained a lot of it. I don't think she plays with the Muppets very well. As good as she sounds, I never felt like she was necessarily emoting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can see that. Like she wasn't necessarily, she was singing the songs incredibly well, but she wasn't necessarily performing the songs. She's not entirely present. You know, I mean, there's a song she's sung before. I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to bag on her too much because she's, a, again, she's an amazing woman. This isn't an easy job. Huh? Sometimes in this business, you have to be ruthless, merciless, and cruel. 
Well, in what way, Chief? Well, I just cut Piggy's song from the show. Why? Well, because there's no way she could follow the great Lena Horn. Uh, She'd look ludicrous. Yeah. yeah, but these are command decisions, Scooter. It's lonely at the top. Of course, in a classic switch, then Piggy comes in and Scooter tells her the truth, which is exactly not the thing he was supposed to do in that moment. Scooter's got very selective situational awareness. He's learning. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like, you know. He knows when to name drop his uncle. That's about it. He's just a gopher, man. He's just there to get coffee. Oh, no, no, no. He got your number so you wouldn't look ludicrous. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm sorry. You see, I, I've got to be ruthless, merciless, and cruel. Cruel? Mm -hmm. I'll show you cruel, kid. Huh? Oh, <laughs> never told me about this part. Fozzie has his act... I actually like this Fozzie one because he made a couple obscure kind of adult references. A couple of Japanese jokes that may have been a little on the borderline. But he does make a joke about Toshiro Mifune, the great star of uh, Japanese cinema. Akira Kurosawa's main leading man, star of like Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. Did you know Toshiro Mifune means no smoking in Japanese? <laughs> when I was a kid, when he says he's going to do his tribute to Marcel Marceau, I had no idea if Marcel Marceau was a very famous French actor in mime. Mm. I didn't know that as a child, so that didn't hit me. But I, I thought that was kind of funny. And, you know, his impression of a man balancing on, on no legs was predictable but cute. I don't even remember Statler and Waldorf. I'm sure they were heckling him. Oh, they were absolutely. Statler and Waldorf, for these two episodes, have become way more physically violent against each other. They do not like each other. Let's get that straight. <laughs> Usually it was just verbal jabs, though. Maybe the true abusive relationship on the show is Statler and Waldorf. I mean, I'm still going to contend that it's Wayne and Wanda, but... Okay, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> not, that's not incorrect. They're just two guys that get stuck together. Like, the first time we meet them, they're in a nursing home or something, right? Basically, in the back in one of the pilots. Mm. They're just sitting in those chairs. So I think they're two guys that just got stuck together. Oh, I could stay on forever. Yeah, you stay on any longer, you'll be running into the prayer of the day. <laughs> Senior citizens one, bear zero. We get a blackout with Lena asks Hilda and an animal to help her find her key. So, mm -hmm. I know I've been very, very ambivalent about Lena for most of this episode. And Animal's one of my favorite Muppets. I legit would have fought Animal if I saw him do that, though. <laughs> But she's been nothing but nice to everyone. Yes. All show. And she looked Very like pleasant. she was genuinely hurt when he, like, swung that mallet. And I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to win Animal, but we got to throw it down. You might like it a little bit more than I would like, but... <laughs> he might he might have a good time with that. Um, she can't find her key, so he, slam he hits her in the foot with a mallet. <laughs> she did, like, that look of pain did seem... I don't think they actually hit her in a foot. But like, <laughs> I, doubt, I doubt it. Yes, I doubt it. That immediate reaction was probably some of the best acting that she'd done all episode. Piggy confronts Kermit backstage. Now that she knows the real reason she's not going to be on the show is because Lena would upstage her. What you said at the beginning of the show uh, about about Lena and me? Oh. I just got it, El Greeno. <laughs> well, yeah, you meant that I couldn't follow her. And then Kermit tells her, well, Piggy, sometimes the truth hurts. You never want to say that to Miss Piggy Lee. No, but so I'm not saying You're that just setting yourself up to get your ass kicked. You're just setting yourself up. That's absolutely true. I'm not saying that Kermit's not being a dick here, but also Piggy will like regularly blatantly just ignore not even just Kermit dropping hints, but Kermit being like, no, just no. When he says truth hurts, like you got to know there's a karate chop coming. Oh, yeah. 
And this was a full-on hi-yah, followed by a curb stomp. Every time she does that, I'm reminded of the fact that we usually see Piggy in heels. Of course she's wearing heels. Okay, maybe backstage she's wearing, like, slippers or something. You know, it's a possibility, but nah, she's wearing heels. She stomps him. Frog stomps him. Hurt! I'll show you hurt! (laughs) And then Lena and the Muppets come out and they perform Sing. Uh, Sing is a Joe Raposo song that premiered on Sesame Street during the second season. So I've heard that song a number of times and I don't think I ever actually realized that's where it came from. It's been, it's kind of become a standard Hmm. in a way. I wouldn't mind this, and I liked this one because I have more affection for this song, I think, than the others. But it was coming on the heels, like I said, this is a third musical number that is just her singing while the Muppets are kind of sitting with her. We're 12 episodes in, but this could still be an example of early installment weirdness. But she's potentially known for more dramatic roles. She can also dance, though. I mean, you know, she's... 60-ish doing this, right? Hey, it's Chad here. Lena Horne turned 59 just a few days before filming this episode. I did that math on the fly in my head, so uh, nailed it. So maybe dancing's off the table? I don't know. All of her numbers in this, other than, you know, a couple of the comedy bits, are just her singing with the Muppets singing back up. Almost adoringly. Like, look at what we've got here. And again, she's a legend, so I get that. This episode made me feel like I was in kindergarten because the songs were so, there was no edge to them. There was no comedy to them. There was no irony to them. Not everything has to be fever. Not everything can be. But I just felt like these were just, the onstage stuff at least was just very gentle to me and didn't have a lot of bite to it. I mean, outside of Animal, but. Before we give off at this episode, I did want to point out that in that final number though, there's Piggy, but there's also Mildred, Wanda, and Hilda. Criticism has been laid at the Muppets, and I think rightfully so, for their lack of female representation. But looking at this early episode, I'm like, there's actually a lot of female Muppets in this first season. Just none of them last, other than Piggy. Mildred, Wanda, and Hilda, they're not they're not big characters for much longer. I did like Hilda, though. No, I, I like all of them, but Hilda's going to go away. Mildred's going to go away. Wanda, I think Wayne and Wanda only last for the first season or two. I don't know. I was just noticing, you know, yes, they only had one other female performer behind the scenes with Aaron Oscar, but I just noticed in the frame, I was like, there are actually a lot of female characters in this frame, and there's it's more females than I associate with The Muppet Show. Mm-hmm. These characters fell off while other characters got bigger. They're just all gone now. So final thoughts on the episode. Um... <laughs> Well, the silence, um, <laughs> I'm trying, you know, trying to, while, while, while great for a podcast, does tell quite a bit. I, I apologize. I'm trying to find no, out how no, to articulate I, I, I think I think it's the correct answer. Like, it's it's okay. I, I actually think the best is the Kermit and Piggy stuff. I will say that the talk spot was probably the most solid bit. I don't know if that's the same thing as being the best bit. You know, from what we've seen so far, it's probably an average episode. There's some really good stuff in it. Man, she's amazing. But in this, just didn't didn't quite land for me. Which is interesting, because we're going to talk about it later. It's not the first time she's worked with Muppets. Hmm. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Peter Ustinov. <laughs> So, Nick, you've actually got a leg up on me, because I know very little about Peter Ustinov. 
There's something interesting about our guests for this week, because I recognize each of them from exactly one thing. Peter Ustinov, he's got a long, long career, and a lot of credits to his name, and I haven't heard of most of them. And someone who's significantly better cultured than I am would probably look at this list and be like, this guy is, like, an arbiter of taste. And they would probably be right. But I only know him as, like, the old guy that was on for 30 seconds at the end of Logan's run. (laughs) right yeah <laughs> so i feel really really bad no there's no reason to feel bad these are 70s icons Ustinov is not a guy who again i don't know a ton about him so i'm looking forward to you telling me but he's not someone who's relevant today so there's no reason for you to know anything about him except for the show i hope you know a little bit about him for the show yeah i feel like you would have recognized significantly more movies in his catalog he did he produced an amazing body of work sir peter Ustinov, he was knighted was born in london on April 16th, 1921, his dad worked for MI5. Two years after Hitler started coming into power, his parents fought a lot. He had a bit of a difficult childhood. He ended up training as an actor when he became an older teenager. He did serve in World War II. This should not be the most interesting thing about this man, and I can guarantee that it's not, but it's the thing that stuck out to me. His rank, or his position, when serving in World War II was Batman. (laughs) with a lowercase b but yeah so it's probably batman probably yeah apparently that's something more like being an orderly he was a batman for corporal david niven who was another famous author writer i believe he might have been an actor as well hi ho chat here uh yes david niven was an actor very famous academy award winning actor probably most known for being in the pink panther and he played james bond in the woody allen casino royale so yeah david niven was a was a big actor he published his first major play in 1951 that was the love of four colonels i'm blazing through his biography because there's a large body of work here and i didn't know what to highlight outside of the things i would have personally or personally seen he was in logan's run he i guess had an important role but i he was only on screen for like maybe three minutes the naming of cats is a difficult matter it's not just one of your holiday games you may think at first I'm mad as a hatter when I tell you that each cat got three different names. He performed in, and I believe wrote the novel, a film called Romanoff and Juliet. <laughs> All right. This wouldn't be the last time he would work with the Muppets. He was in The Great Muppet Caper. Hey, what's all the racket? What are you doing here? A very brief cameo. Me too. He was in the Disney Robin Hood as both Prince John and King Richard, which, having heard his voice this episode, I can actually picture pretty clearly. Oh, he was Prince John? This crown gives me a feeling of power! Power! Forgive me a cruel chuckle. <laughs> power. Now that, now that I hear it in my head, yep. There were a series of movies in the 80s in which he played Hercule Poirot. I'm going to mispronounce his name, Poirot. Inspector uh, Pirro. Pirro. I totally mixed that up. Whatever it is. I don't know. I don't speak French. Um, I, I don't either. He did, though. He actually spoke a lot of languages. Let's see. He spoke French, English, Spanish, Italian, German, and Russian, often dubbing his own lines and like the foreign translations of stuff. He did that for this episode, too. He, yeah, he did. He was the president of the World Federalist Movement from 1991 until the time he died, meaning that he likes the idea of there being one world government. He also did a lot of work with UNICEF. He died of heart failure in March of 2004. 
Anyone listening to the show who is a fan of Ustinov, I apologize. I'm sure that I didn't touch on whatever your favorite work was from him. But there were a lot I didn't know what to cover. The only other ones I would point out, he was in Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. Not my favorite telling of the Spartacus legend. I prefer the, the TV show, honestly. Are you not Spartacus? Ring of Rain? And then the other thing, he was in um, Top Cappy, which is a, a French film directed by the great American director Jules Dassin. His, I'm looking at it right now too. His IMDb page is like, it's meaty, but it's not relevant to most people today. Like, and not, not, I mean, he was in Lorenzo's Oil with Nick Nolte, which is a good movie. It's not like a lot of his stuff, like you said, Logan's Run, <laughs> Great Muppet Caper, Spartacus. These are movies that people still watch. The one thing I didn't hear you list was he a sex symbol? Because <laughs> apparently, according to this episode, he's a total catch. So here's the thing. Every woman in this episode, <laughs> every person in this episode. Ustinov was someone who was of a high class background and he produced a great body of work. I don't know enough about him to say that he was never at odds with anyone, but generally speaking, the way that he presents himself is as someone who's very friendly and very welcoming and very enthusiastic. So if he's coming from a place of culture and a creative background, and he moves into very specific circles, it's a weird thought, but it's entirely believable that he would be a sex symbol. He wouldn't be like the standard Jason Momoa type of sex symbol. Like a Gerard Depardieu type of sex symbol? Actually, Gerard Depardieu was pretty hot when he was younger. I'm just imagining him being Rasputin. Like, every description of Rasputin makes it seem like he probably wouldn't be that attractive to people, but apparently he was sleeping with a bunch of people's wives. There's such a thing as a very, like, acute, unconventional charm, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had it. I just mentioned it because uh, everyone in this episode loves Peter Ustinov. I think that might have been part of the frame, though, because we haven't seen anyone really try to make Kermit jealous before this. This is episode 112, directed by... Wait for it. Peter Harris, written by Burns, Henson, Jewel, London, and a hat rack. Those are the official credits. Produced July 1976, premiered October and November, UK and NYC, respectively. I don't know if the hat rack got his WGA card, but I'd be very jealous if a hat rack was in the Writers Guild and I wasn't. It was grandfathered in. Muppet Show theme, Gonzo gets stuck in the sign somehow. So then we're treated to an evening at the Pops, where a balloon guy is popping balloons? Yeah. Now I'm going to slaughter a name. Leo Dilibis. It's D E I L B Dilibis, but it's he's a French Dilibis, he's a French composer and this was a part of an opera he wrote. So yeah, it's like a conductor, he's got a head for a balloon. He's got a balloon for a head. <laughs> he doesn't have a head for a balloon. He's not even going to have that for very long. And then at the end his head popped. There's really I've been writing this down lately. Funny to my kid is a note there. So, <laughs> yeah, Statler and Waldorf talk about music soothing the savage beast, which is actually weird. And he actually quotes, doesn't he quote? They say music hath charm to soothe the savage beast. <laughs> which is funny because that's the name of a sketch they did on Ed Sullivan, Music Hath Charms, which was about Kermit playing a piano while a monster was basically trying to get to him, and he's trying to soothe the savage beast with the piano. Um, in this, Animal just attacks them. <laughs> Piggy tells Kermit that she just loves being near her love. There's a bit of uh, continuity there as well, because Kermit references the fact that he told her that he didn't have time for romantic entanglements. This was the next one that was shot. Like, it, it's not always the case, but this one was shot, yeah, a few days later, so yeah, there could have actually... So that's probably is continuity in, in a way. 
But Piggy is talking about how her heart's going pitter-patter and how she's all riled up. But she's not talking about Kermit. No, I'm talking about Peter Ustinov. He is a renaissance man. Well, I am a leg man. One for the kids, one for the adults. Of course, I don't know if the kids know what a renaissance man is either. So here we get to what my problem, uh, this is going to sound negative. These episodes are, are good. I'm not saying that. But this is why I was interested in what you're going to say about Peter Ustinov. If I had just watched this episode, if you asked me what Peter Ustinov did, I would say he is at best an impressionist who does bad foreign accents. Because that is all he does in the entire episode. All of his shtick is him doing accents. Kind of, but I, I will say, especially to compare it to the prior episode, he does play better with the Muppets than Lena did. But because his sketches are interactive, mm. right? This first one we're talking about is a Muppet Lab sketch where he actually has a scene with Bunsen Honeydew and Kermit and stuff, and he actually does things. Lena's were just her sitting there singing while they were all gathered around her. True. Ustinov, yeah, he, he has a better time with them because he's actually acting with them. So this first Muppet Lab's... He's basically, Bunsen's going to turn him into a Muppet. I think Kermit was the one that said he was going to turn him into a Muppet. Like an introduction shortly before, because Ustinov said something about not being used to working oh, with Oh, that's Muppets. right. Right, so right. That was actually the intro to the sketch. Mm. And then Honeydew tells him he's going to be a robot politician. And he becomes a British prime minister in a very kind of clear um, Churchill impression. Yet with perseverance, we can, nay, we shall, ah, prevail. He does an American president. I'm not sure he was who he was supposed I to think be. He was trying to be Nixon. I got Nixon from that. And I tell you, my friends, <laughs> this is the greatest country in the world. Stands ready to forge ahead. Bring peace to the world. Yeah, there was a little Nixon, 76, that would make sense. And a little mixed in with kind of generic president. And then it does a Russian prime minister, a Russian premier, um, which just sounds like... The Russian people will not rub this salt agreement into the wound. He does then do like a series of accents mm -hmm. uh, as Bunsen kind of runs him through the paces. Is a couple in there that... Don't age well. <laughs> it, and it was something that I was rolling over because it did seem like he was just generally trying to cast a wide net. Like, I don't think any of them were necessarily hateful. It just doesn't hold water now. But at the same time, he's doing it for everybody else. He's doing British and he's doing Russian. But there's a difference, right? Russians, Brits, Americans, they all look alike. Does he do a Hispanic accent, too? He did Arabic. Yeah. I think he specified China. The Arabic one was a little rough, I think. He does something that's either Chinese or Japanese or whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's one of the pitfalls of going back and watching things that came out in the 1970s. Mm. I mean, it's one of the pitfalls of going back and watching things that came out five years ago. Yeah. It's just how the world works. And that's fine. It's fine for things to become problematic. It's fine for things to age poorly. You acknowledge things and you kind of just understand that. What did you think of this one? Generally speaking, I thought it was fine. And I mean, I did watch this and the Lena Horn episode back to back. So some part of my mind was still comparing the two. He seemed I did the significantly more at ease which I think allowed me to relax more. Muppet Labs isn't really going to hum until uh, Bunsen gets his uh, sidekick, until he gets his assistant. Me, 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 me. Fozzie comes backstage, uh, and he's looking for Peter, and then he does the same thing Piggy does, where he talks up Peter huge, and just talks about how much he admires him and all these things, and says that he wants to, uh, that working with him is the highlight of his career. <laughs> and uh, Kermit says, you told me that last week. And there's a very funny deadpan beat. And he goes, 
I was wrong. <laughs> Everyone thinks Peter Ustinov is way cooler than Kermit. Way smarter, way sexier, way more talented, which is going to actually have a payoff on stage. Mm-hmm. We have uh, At the Dance. I find that most people don't believe what other people tell them. Uh, I don't think that's true. Hey, you want to stop by the punch bowl? Why do they call it a punch bowl? <laughs> That's why. Sam comes out and he introduces uh, Doctors Arnold Nude and Dr. Frederick Nick to come out and uh, discuss post-Dickensian economics. And it's Peter Ustinov and Fozzie. I really liked Fozzie in this one, though. Like, it, we're, we've been talking about yeah. them getting a better grip on who Fozzie is, but more often than not, if you see Fozzie in an episode, you're going to see Fozzie backstage or you're going to see Fozzie doing a stand-up, but you don't see him as much. I, I wasn't a huge fan of this, but maybe because I was watching it with my kid and she just looked at it, like, deadpanned. It's all wordplay. It's it's all building toward that, uh... I, and as I say that, I'm forgetting the punchline. They do answer the question, it's just... This is your drunk uncle telling you a story. And a beautiful girl asked Benny to shave his beard off. No. And when a furry godmother heard oh, yeah, that yeah. Benny had shaved, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. why, she got Batman. Batman. She turned Benny into a Grecian iron. Yeah, yeah. And, and that only goes to prove the economic theory. A Benny shaved is a Benny I'm. I think part of why I'm more tolerant of this particular episode is they're all talking about Istanov like he's a sex symbol or like he's a Renaissance man, but he kind of just seems like a harmless guy to me. Is the joke that he's just kind of a goofball while everyone's talking about it? Is that a joke or are these two just two separate things? I love this UK spot. Miss Piggy sings a song called Hey, Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong Song, which is uh, was a 1975 hit by someone named B.J. Thomas. Rolf's on the piano, and then it's got a huge chorus. Fozzie, George, Mildred, Scooter, Janice, Hilda, and Gonzo are all kind of singing the chorus. But Miss Piggy's singing this song, which is, you know, it's, it's a breakup song. It's lonely out tonight, and the feeling just got right. For a brand new love song Somebody done somebody wrong song Okay everybody Hey, won't you play Another somebody done somebody wrong song And uh, I thought this was awesome Frank was on fire in this one Although interesting, Piggy and Fozzie in the same, in the same scene Something you don't see very often True Fozzie's voice doesn't exactly stand out. And, but, but the thing is, all the musical numbers were pre-recorded, so they could just pre-record the whole thing. And, you know, if I had to guess because Piggy's the lead, I'd have to guess one of the other puppeteers is running uh, Fozzie mm. while Frank's doing Piggy. We're seeing more Piggy, right? Piggy's getting these UK spots. And while, yeah, they didn't air in the US, they were usually production numbers, right? They're usually songs. Mm-hmm. What I loved, though, too, is Frank was the least comfortable singing out of all of them. <laughs> but the question is, I guess, can Piggy really sing? I mean, according to Lena. Then Hilda is all about Ustinov, too, backstage. Um, Ustinov tells her that she's good at her job, and Kermit's like, I've always said you're good at your job. She's like, yeah, but what do you know? 
It's actually kind of racist because everybody keeps saying like, well, you're just a frog. I think Hilda even says like, what is a frog? She did. And there's, I mean, that's going around the Muppet show left and right from everything from, I mean, the pigs are the the most obvious example, but. But it's a setup. The frog thing is a setup for what's going to happen at the end of this episode. Then we have You Do Something to Me, which is a weird one. So at the beginning of this, it seemed like he was addressing or that we were hearing from the perspective of a child. And I realized that she's wearing like a string of pearls and this is basically polymorph the sketch, but it's another it's another one of their metamorphosis sketches, right? That's another one of their Southern Colonel sketches um, where you're using the they're almost um, impressionistic. Mm hmm. Because they're using the they're using the actual the actual Muppets themselves and in, in their their actual physical use and their physical utility as part of the bit, if that makes sense, right? Like their their transformation is only something you can do with a puppet. Mm-hmm. So that's a Cole Porter song, most famous, I think, for the line of that voodoo you do mm-hmm. so well. And uh, it's from a musical called Fifty Million Frenchmen, and I don't know what that was about, but the title's funny. He starts off, the assistant starts off as, like, something beautiful, and then he's transforming the assistant into what we think is a monster, but what he's really doing is transforming his partner back into his partner, or another wizard back into a wizard from what he had turned him into in the first place. That's kind of the, the twist. Copenhagen, Denmark. Dr. Felix Ogelbaum says that after 30 years concentrated research, he has discovered the cure for the common cold. Our Muppet cameras are on the scene and we'll speak with Dr. Ogelbaum about this great medical breakthrough. Dr. Ogelbaum. Yeah, yeah, I'm Felix Ogelbaum in Copenhagen, Denmark. Yes, Dr. Ogelbaum, can you tell us about this cure? Yeah, of course. It was right under our noses. Do you believe that? I'm so excited. First, you stay away from sick people. That's very important. Then you wrap your head in a number 10 size brown paper bag. And you pour honey over yourself and you hold your breath for about an hour or so, eh? Uh, And this will cure the common cold? Positively. Listen, some of that's a pretty good advice for not getting COVID. I mean, you know, I'm just saying it's relevant. This is where I wrote down, can he do anything other than accents? I mean, with his catalog being what it was, probably, but I'm also wondering if that's... With these early episodes, I feel like they're consistently working an angle. Like, even the Rita Moreno episode, they were playing into her having a temper, and it worked. I don't think it would be fair to say that it's a one-note approach. That's true. They did, you know, Ruth Buzzy talked a lot. Several of Ruth's bits were about... uh, That sounds dirty, Ruth's bits. Um, (laughs) Several of Buzzy's bits were about her being a motor mouth. I'm glad that Buzzy's bit sounds more innocuous. Yeah, I I I decided to go with Buzzy's bits. And Harvey Corman had a similar thing, too, where he was playing the type. So then uh, Wayne and Wanda, where they come out... This one's really quick. where uh, they sing a song called Autumn Leaves, which is uh, from a French mystery film that in English is called Gates of the Night. Interesting. From the 1940s. And uh, yeah, they start singing it, and after like a line and a half, they get buried in leaves. And then that's the end of the bit. Panel discussion. I just wrote down more accents. He does one, but yeah. There is something that he does pretty regularly where he just diffuses, like... All he does throughout the bit is diffuse what the other Muppets might be saying as Kermit tries to get ready to defend him as they... Because I guess the the central conceit is psychology is something that most people would turn their noses up at in the 70s. 
there was a time in the 70s, you know, and earlier where psychology was considered like weird and only like certain weird people did it and it was still very in doubt. And then in the 90s, it became very sexy. There was a whole string of movies in the 90s, like erotic thrillers, where the lead was always a psychiatrist, like uh, Color of Night with Bruce Willis. And uh, I think even Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct, I think she's she's a mystery writer, but also like a psychologist. And now it's just like, you know, everybody's everybody's got a therapist. Now we go backstage again, and uh, now it's Scooter. His faithful, okay, I won't call him faithful, <laughs> his loyal, he's not really loyal to Kermit. I wouldn't say that. Sometimes it feels weird to lose that person that is always underfoot. Scooter, who annoys the hell out of Kermit, has decided that he likes Peter Usnoff better. Well, he's one of your favorites, huh? Well, not one of them. He is my favorite. Uh, last week, I was your favorite. Well, we grow, Kermit. We progress. <laughs> I just saw him in that last sketch. I was on the floor. That's a lousy place to watch a sketch from. <laughs> I meant from laughter. You see, when I grow up, I want to be just like him. Uh, last week you wanted to be just like me. I was wrong. Now, all of this stuff, and I think this is maybe maybe one of the first times we've seen it, is the backstage story is all leading up to a number. I Before we get into that, I also sort of want to draw attention to the fact that Kermit is usually the person, and this is something they're very, very obviously lampshading, Kermit is usually the person that's got perspective outside of it, and it is interesting to see him handle jealousy without necessarily flying off the handle like he's he's feeling it but he's he's not lashing out at Ustinov. he's not he'll say something like wait i thought you liked me or i thought i did these things or aren't i great but he doesn't go full kanye like it's you never go full kanye they had uh sorry we shouldn't make fun of them in their times of marital strife <laughs> so uh whoever saw that coming <laughs> i'm not gonna touch that so this backstage story, though, of Kermit being jealous, and I think you're right, he's not overly jealous. He doesn't, because it, if you think about it, he doesn't really, Piggy's affection is not desired by him. Scooter annoys him. Fozzie and him are becoming better friends, but Fozzie's still kind of annoying to him. He's kind of irrationally jealous, because if it was any one of these people, it wouldn't be as big of a deal to him, but everyone all together is making him feel a little inferior, compared to, of course, the great ladies' man, Peter Ustinov. Kermit comes out, and he sings what is probably his anthem, Being Green. It's Kermit's song of personal doubt and affirmation. Now, this song, if it would probably surprise some people to know that this is the first time we're seeing this song, but it is the 11th time this song had been performed on television. I always assumed that this was kind of like the premiere of Being Green. So that was definitely my take on it. Right. Turns out what it is is basically Frank Sinatra doing my way. Being Green was a Sesame Street song. A little bit about how this works. So John Stone, who we talked about, of course, in the past, the head writer on Sesame Street, he would go to the writers, the songwriters, particularly Joe Raposo, but there were other songwriters, and he would go, hey, I need this song. And he would be very clear to them, all right, it has to have this kind of theme, and these are the, because it's Sesame Street, right, it's very criteria-based. So he's like, this is what it's trying to get across. This is its purpose. This is its, you know, what it's trying to do. And maybe even give them a few words or something or the name of a song. So near the end of season one, probably, uh, we're talking late 69, maybe early 70, John Stone comes to Joe Raposo and says, hey, I need a song for the frog. And he tells him what the song should be, what it's trying to teach. Uh, he gives Raposo his notes. And the two of them were the only people in the room. And the two of them were the only people that know exactly. But on the sheet music, 
And in the credits and everything, that song is words and lyrics by Joe Raposo. Stone's family believe that John Stone wrote that song. And there has been ba- ba- there has been battles over it, apparently, because being green, there's a lot of royalties in that song. Mm. What I've kind of sussed out is this, though. Yes, I am sure John Stone wrote some of, if maybe more, uh, me, a majority of, I have no idea, of being green. In the same way that he wrote little pieces of every single song that he gave notes to the writers to. That was just the, because it wasn't, John Stone actually never went after Raposo for it. He never tried to claim credit. He actually had a huge fight with his wife over it because she was like, why aren't you trying to get credit for the song you wrote? You see, my wife, she has been most vocal on the subject of the pretzel monies. Where's the money? When are you going to get the money? Why aren't you getting the money now? And so on. So please, the money. So what it feels like to me is that the only reason people claim or his family claims that John Stone should be the writer on that one is because it's the big one. Mm Because there are dozens of others that he probably had the same amount of input on that are songs that aren't world known. They're both probably right and they're both probably wrong. Neither man is alive anymore. And neither of them really fought over it. It became, a, it became something about his estate, I think. Mm. You know, it's a collaborative job. And yes, I, I think if you were really looking at it, you would say it was written by both of them. But that's just not, but John's job wasn't songwriter. His job was associate, uh, executive producer. Mm. That's just not, it's just not how it works. But I think the reason that they want to claim that John wrote this one in particular is because it's a big song. Being Green first came on, uh, it was first aired on Sesame Street in season one. It then got played on a lot of other things, actually. Um, It was sung, uh, he sung it with Goldie Hawn on the Pure Goldie special, which we talked about but couldn't watch because it's not available. He sang it at the Evening at the Pops on TV, Julie Andrews on Sesame Street thing that I plan on watching for a bonus episode. He did it on The Tonight Show. In 1974, he sang it again on Sesame Street with Lena Horne. That was the seventh time. And then he did it on The Share Show with Ray Charles. This episode in 1976 was the first time it was played on The Muppet Show. So like I said, it was, it was less him premiering a new song and more him breaking out a golden oldie almost, <laughs> like it, or, or his latest hit. It's not easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves now, if you go back to that first performance, it's actually a little off. Being Green is a tough song. He shoves, there are moments in it where he shoves a lot of words into too few bars. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. So Jim struggled with it the first recording. This is, I think, the most famous performance of it. And you know, one of the best and, 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 and kind of the, the, the definitive performance of it. But do you, what is your history with hearing this song? It's one of those things that was an early onset of cultural osmosis where it's just, it's always sort of been there. I don't remember the first time I heard the song. My parents didn't have a problem with the Muppets, but we weren't a really Muppet, like we weren't really a, a Muppet household in the same way. There's a certain ubiquity to the Muppets that we're aware of, but we can overlook. And this and the Rainbow Connection are just, weirdly, they feel like they're part of American canon at this point. I would consider them standards. Now, uh, I don't believe Disney would agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't believe Disney would agree on that. I believe they would believe that they're intellectual property that they own. 
We weren't allowed to sing happy birthday until relatively recently anyway. I mean... Although being green actually might belong to Children's Television Workshop. Actually, it probably does. I think Rainbow Connection is a better song, but I think this song makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. I could see that. There's a soaring nature to it at the end. For some reason, when he gets to the line about green being the color of spring. And green can be cool and friendly-like. And green can be big like a mountain or important like a river or tall like a tree. It always kind of breaks me a little. Oh no, it's just a, it's a beautiful turn in the song and it can be taken so many different ways. And how it works in this episode, of course, is that Kermit's had a bad day. More than one person has kind of been down on him for being a frog, even for being green. And so he comes out and sings his song that is about how beautiful it turns out to be green. And then it works. I think of what we've watched so far, it's to me, the most emotionally filling arc they've had. It's a true, it's an arc that culminates, you know, there's a steady build to it. You just watch that scene on its own. It's great. Watching it in context in the whole episode, but and again, it's a, it's a jokey show and these things about Kermit being jealous or a running gag and whatever. But he does come out there with an emotional weight and you feel him, a guy working it out. I think that's pretty cool. The other thing that's cool about it is that's actually the final number. Yeah. The big finish, which it is. And then, you know, they do add a little capper to the story because then at the closing... Oh, we forgot to mention it. So earlier in the episode, there's a little bit with Peter and um, Kermit talking, and he talks about... Uh, it's my first experience in performing with um, performers other than people, if you follow me. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it takes some getting used to, I guess, but uh, we've worked with humans before, so just relax, take it easy, and don't sit on any of your fellow performers. Yeah, well, I'll try not to, but I was going to sit down on my dressing room chair, you know, and it walked away. Oh, well, well, that was a Muppet. See, that chair is married to the show's writer. Who's the writer? The hat rack. So then in the closing, Peter comes out and uh, with the hat rack. With one of the show's writers, an actual, just a, just a hat rack. And then the real kind of little final twist they give on the backstage story is that... It's been great having you, although I must admit I've been a little bit jealous. You have? I'm yep. jealous of you. I've always wanted to be a frog. You're kidding. Ribbit, uh, uh, ribbit. How do you do that? Uh, very tight shirt collar. <laughs> well, welcome to the wonderful world of frogs. Yeah, and we'll see you all next time on the Muppet Show. <laughs> next time, you've never heard of the banana sketch. Uh, so next week we'll be watching episode one thirteen and one fourteen with guests Bruce Forsyth and Sandy Duncan. I have no idea who Bruce Forsyth is. I'm going into this completely fresh. So check us out on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at LunaticDaring, LunaticDaring.com. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Talk to you in a week or two. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio. Well, they did improve the level of television entertainment. Well, they had no place to go but up. 